2: sequence
1: start. Space Nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three two, one. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley and astronomer at large, Professor Fred Watson joins us yet again. Hello, Fred.
2: Hello, Andrew. How
1: are you today? I am sterlingly well. How are you? <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm
2: um, I'm dollarly well. There you go. <laughs> I Work many, that one out. I wonder how many
1: people will get that.
2: And I don't even get it myself.
1: Yeah. I knew where you were coming from, which is a bit of a concern. Yes, it is, isn't it? Never and mind. I'm not, I'm not going to explain it. Someone's no, going to to figure right. it out for themselves. Yes. Uh, today... today Good grief. Uh, we're going to talk about exoplanets. There's a couple of stories in the news about exoplanets. Uh, one in particular is this discovery uh, by, uh, the Euros, uh, by ESO yep. um, about an exoplanet that looks pretty hot, pretty darn hot. Uh, huh? and um, has got quite a storm going on as well. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, the number of exoplanets has surpassed a significant number. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that too. Uh, you may have heard that NASA's all-female spacewalk has been cancelled, uh, which must be a great disappointment because it was going to be a, um, a, a huge uh, milestone in space. I'm sure they'll get another chance, but it's not going to happen this time. And some questions, uh, like uh, we were really whittling them down, Fred, but uh, since we last spoke, we've received about four or five, so <laughs> we're, we're back in debt. But yeah. uh, we've got a couple. One about what happens when black holes die, what do they turn into, if anything? It's a good question. But I particularly love this one from Kevin in Melbourne about throwing stuff at Earth while you're in space. I mean, quite literally, you're outside and you throw something. What happens? to you and to it. So it, it's a really interesting question. I've got a little anecdote to add because um, I actually saw a, um, a, a program uh, recently where that situation actually arose. So um, um, it's, it's a bit gruesome, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, but first of all, Fred, let's start with this um, uh, amazing story uh, about this uh, discovery uh, in the form of an exoplanet.
2: Yeah. So uh, this is some work that has been done on the European Southern Observatory's telescopes. The um, European Southern Observatory, of course, uh, important in our our deliberations because Australia is now involved with a strategic partnership with ESO, uh, which allows our astronomers here in Australia access to their four giant uh, telescopes, 8.2 metre telescopes uh, down in Chile. However, Um, Those four telescopes are normally used independently, but you can link them together uh, and you can link them then with four smaller telescopes, uh, which are called auxiliary telescopes. I can't remember. They're they're about 1.8 metres in diameter, I think, rather than the 8.1. And and they're all hooked together with um, underground light paths that allow the beams from all these four telescopes to be combined and what that forms is something called an interferometer and an interferometer allows you to see things in very very great detail it's what the radio astronomers use all the time they use arrays of telescopes to mimic t- uh, to mimic a bigger dish and to beat down the uh, you know the amount of detail, or to Beat up the amount of detail you can see uh, to beat down the resolution limit is the way I was about to say it, um, which is all about detail. Uh, Optical astronomy, visible light astronomy is a bit harder because you've got to combine the beams uh, directly. So... um, The technology has improved enormously in the last few years, and we've had some very spectacular results from this VLTI, as it's called, the Very Large Telescope Interferometer. Uh, We've seen uh, the details of stars orbiting the black hole in the centre of our galaxy, for example. But this latest research concentrates on extrasolar planets, the planets orbiting around other stars, and one in particular, which has been studied with the VLTI, uh, a star that rejoices in the name of HR 8799E, uh, the E tells you it's um, one of a number of planets uh, orbiting the star HR8799. Uh, the, the letter at the end tells you which order of planet it is in terms of discovering.
1: So hang on, it's the fourth planet because yeah, that's right. the, the, the star is actually the A? Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, no, uh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, it's the fifth uh it's, so the, it's fifth the fifth planet. because the star is the unadorned number right. so the first one is a b c d e that's right so it's so
1: the fifth this is quite a system isn't
2: it yeah it is it is uh and this is perhaps one of the uh most interesting of all the planets first of all this star uh hr 8799 is a young star it's only you know 30 million years old which is the blink of an eye in cosmic time, compared with the age of the Sun and the Earth, which is 4.6 billion years. So this is much, much younger, uh, and that means it's it's a, a world that is still very, very hot from its formation. Um, and in fact, the scientists estimate a surface temperature of 1,000 degrees Celsius. Oh, boy. Yeah. It makes our summers look quite benign, really, here in Australia. Uh, And the the reasons for that are partly... Um, the, there's still leftover energy within, the, uh, you know, within the, the body of the planet from its formation, but there's also a really strong greenhouse effect. Uh, that that's the same thing that keeps the planet Venus warm. It's got a very strong greenhouse effect uh, that holds its temperature at about 450, 460 Celsius. And
1: just to keep our American uh, listeners, all, all three of them, happy, that's 1,832 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit.
2: Oh, there you go. <laughs> Don't forget the 32 degrees.
1: No. Yep. So, um, but the
2: interferometry technique has basically now allowed people to look at the details of it. Um, in, in particular, uh, you get, because you can, you can isolate the light of the planet only and nothing else, you can produce a spectrum of the planet's atmosphere. And it's it's very, very detailed. And that's what this work is based on. So um, the uh, basically the the, the lead scientist uh, is a man called uh, Sylvestre Lacour, who's at L'Observatoire de Paris. Um, in France, uh, and he uh, has worked with um, basically with uh, colleagues uh, in Europe. Uh, what um, what Silvestre says is, our analysis shows that HR8799E has an atmosphere containing far more carbon monoxide than methane. And something which is not expected from equilibrium chemistry—you'd expect those two basically not to exist uh, together. Mm. And so he says we can best explain this sur- surprising result with high mm. vertical winds within the atmosphere, presenting the carb- preventing the carbon monoxide from reacting with hydrogen to form methane. So um, th- there's clearly something really weird going on. And they infer that that means very, very stormy weather. And they found that there are clouds, wait for this, clouds of iron and silicate dust in the atmosphere. And so um, when you put that uh, into the picture with the carbon monoxide, uh, the outcome is that the atmosphere of this poor little world is just one big, violent storm, it's just a raging uh, inferno of a storm. It's got cancer written all over it. It's gone, oh. yes, that's right. It's not good news. No.
1: His, uh, now, so however, Sil- the, the clouds of silicate and iron particles I can relate to with our dust storms out here.
2: Yeah, that's right, exactly. Uh, he said, uh, This is Sylvester again. He goes on to say, Our observations suggest a ball of gas illuminated from the interior wow. with rays of warm light swirling through stormy patches of dark clouds. Convection moves around the clouds of silicate and iron particles which disaggregate and rain down into the interior. It paints a picture of a dynamic atmosphere, you can say that again, uh, a dynamic atmosphere of a giant exoplanet at birth undergoing complex physical and chemical processes. So what we're seeing here is, you know, a phase that we know the Earth went to through some pretty dramatic phases, but not as dramatic as this, because the Earth is a much smaller world than this one. This is bigger than Jupiter. It's a super Jupiter.
1: Wow. So, um, so it's a gas giant. It's a gas giant. Yeah. Oh, well, but it might not be. Yes, it's probably a gas
2: giant, that's right, with all this stuff going on in the atmosphere. So if anybody uh, you, know, you know, a travel agent or anybody offers you <laughs> a holiday on HR
1: 8799E, uh, I'd, I'd pass it over. Yes, indeed. Wow. What, <laughs> what a, a horrible place by the sound of yeah, it. But it sounds like a real you know, dump, We've it? got a few of them in our solar system, so not as yeah. bad as that. But no,
2: the, the ours are pretty benign compared with this.
1: Yeah, but, but they're still horribly dangerous. Uh, if you've got the chance to go there. Yeah. Um, and we've been to all of them now, haven't we? Uh,
2: One, uh, not in great detail. Uranus and Neptune are the are the ones in which we have the least amount of detail. Yeah. Uh, the others have all had a pretty good look. Yes. But um, returning
1: to exoplanets, we have other news Yes, as well. this is um, quite astounding. I, I knew we'd found a lot, but yeah. there are a lot, lot of A them lot, there. lot, yes.
2: So <laughs> just about 4,000. 4,000. So, well, when was the first one discovered? 1995. Uh, So we're talking about, you know, 24 years of Mm. of activity. Um, And I guess the, you know, the outcome of all this is just that, uh, as uh, astrophysicists say now, pretty well, every star in in our galaxy will have at least one planet around it. Uh, And that that was something that we guessed at years and years ago, but didn't have the wherewithal to measure it. So there are two big archives of these exoplanets that sort of bring together uh, all the uh, information that we have. Um, NASA runs one. It's called the Exoplanet Archive. And they have, um, I think they're short, that there's something like 3,000, Uh, 926, I think, is the number uh, that they've got. So they're just under the 4,000 limit, but they've got over 400 candidates which have already been detected by uh, the TESS space telescope just waiting for confirmation. And and more than 2,000, 2,500 nearly, that are still waiting uh, for confirmation from the Kepler space telescope, of course, which is where most of this 4,000 came from. So... If all of those turned out to be real planets, we're talking about um, something like, uh, where are we, 3,000, 7,000, more like
1: 7,000,
2: yeah. yeah. Um, Just turning to the other big... I uh, always
1: forget to carry the one.
2: (laughs) Yes. Uh, just turning to the other big, I won't comment on that, the other big um, exoplanet uh, list is a catalogue run by L'Observatoire de Paris, uh, which we mentioned um, a few minutes ago, a lovely place, if ever you get the chance to go, beautiful old building built in the uh, 1670, I think it was built in. Um, yeah. They've passed 4,000 already, uh, and it's because they just have slightly different um, um, you know, categories of what these planets, whether they're confirmed or not. So uh, the bottom line is uh, 4,000 is about the number of exoplanets that we know, uh, which means I'm going to have to update uh, the chapter of the
1: book that I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why no, I write science fiction, because you don't have to change anything.
2: Yeah, you have, there's several things. This book's all about cutting-edge science, and I tell you, it's a nightmare every well, time I finish a chapter.
1: The trouble with cutting-edge science is it's um, it's always in flux. So it's in flux, yeah, exactly. You'll so publish I've... the book and it'll be out of date next week.
2: It, it's out of date almost before it appears on the shelves, that's mm-hmm. right. Never mind. It's not, you know, the, the bottom line. Why do I write these books? To entertain people. That's really the only answer. <laughs>
1: Yeah, a milestone, a milestone. Okay, so great news on exoplanets. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor... Back to the show.
2: Okay, we checked all four systems and in with a go.
1: Space Nuts. Now, Fred, um, it's it's reached a point, I suppose, with space travel that a lot of what happens doesn't even make the news anymore. When we first started uh, putting people into orbit, it was just front page around the world and captivated the um, uh, the hearts and minds of of people everywhere. Uh, and then it sort of waned and then it came back again with missions to Mars and, and so on and so forth, um, you know, sending probes. And then the space shuttle program, which sort of kept people going and then a couple of disasters that sort of piqued people's interests. And then things settle down and uh, space missions have sort of become fairly normal to the point where they're happening and we don't even know it because they, they rarely make the news unless you pursue it yourself by, by following certain websites and blogs and, and so on. But uh, there is a story that has made a lot of news uh, at the moment and that is the, um, the the plan to do an all-female spacewalk, which sadly has been cancelled. <laughs>
2: Probably only temporarily I would guess because I, would I, don't think so. it, I don't think it'll be long before we've got uh, all female spacewalks so of course it's part of the routine of uh, work on board the International Space Station the people have to go outside from time to time to uh, not not kick the tires and check the wheels it's more about um, changing equipment usually uh, and those that involve spacewalks which uh, always involve two astronauts I think uh, there are times perhaps when it's only one, but usually it's two. Um, and there were plans uh, for something quite impressive coming up. I think it was going to be early in April, I think possibly next week as we speak, uh, for the first all female spacewalk with two female astronauts. Uh, because at the moment there are two uh, ladies up there on the International Space Station, Christina Koch and Anne McLean, uh, who. Uh, both, um, you know, uh, qualified for spacewalking. So the idea was uh, that there is an installation needed on the outside of the space station and it's installing batteries. And I guess these are fairly solid lumps of technology rather than the kind of thing that, you, you, you know, you put in your camera or anything like that. Uh, the installation of those batteries was going to be the very first uh, spacewalk mission with two females but it's been canned.
1: Now, the question obviously is why, and I know the answer, and it's sort of, <laughs> I mean, no, one of them didn't get sick. Um, it was nothing like that. It, it, it's something much more unfortunate <laughs> or mundane or whatever whatever you want to call it. It's it's just one of those quirks of fate, I suppose you'd call it. I think it. it
2: is It is a quirk of fate, but you have to choose your words carefully here because it, it strikes me as being a very... Um, you, well, I can't even say it. It's it's a sort of feminine thing in the sense that, um, you know, I know um, my partner, for example, has to be sure that she's wearing the right thing before she goes out. I, don't, I know she's actually a lot less picky than some people that I've been involved with in the past. Keep digging, Fred. Keep digging. <laughs> yeah, I keep digging. I know. <laughs> but yeah, it's a wardrobe issue um, because there, there's only one spacesuit the right size. (laughs) Um, And it's a medium size. And that's what's caused the issue. Uh, It turns out that both these astronauts need a medium-sized spacesuit. There are actually two medium-sized spacesuits on board the space station, but you need so much preparation. Uh, One of them is is ready for spaceflight, one's not. And it needs so much preparation that the more... Uh, rapid um solution to the problem is to basically cancel for now anyway the uh, the two female space walk uh, it, and it's it comes about because um uh let me just get this the right way around uh, the, i think um, uh, uh Anne McLean has trained with both medium and large sized spacesuits. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, the, it turns out, the medium one fits her better, and that's probably why the change has been made. Because um, uh, Christina Koch is definitely a, a medium, uh, and so that's what has has actually, uh, you know, caused the the issue. Two people the same size. Now you might think, well, surely a space is not particularly specific in size it's just a big kind of bag with air in it that uh, has arms and legs that people get into but apparently it's all about um what's called the the, the hard upper torso the shirt of the space suit which is a you know a, a pretty solid uh, part of it uh, which really needs to fit uh, specifically uh, to the astronaut that's going to use it and so uh it's yeah rather than rather than try and engage on getting the second medium-sized one uh, ready, uh, what has happened is that, uh, that um, there's been uh, a change in astronaut rather than a change in spacesuit. Uh, there is a comment that's come from um, somebody called Brandy Dean, who's a spokeswoman at the Johnson Space Centre in Houston, saying, and this is something I guess you and I have talked about this kind of thing before, people's sizes change when they get into space. Yes, that's right. As soon as you get in microgravity, uh, it it brings about changes in the body. Do you remember that story, was it last year, somebody who grew about four inches or
1: something? Yeah, it was actually probably a bit longer than that, the year (laughs) before last maybe, but, yeah, he he grew four inches. uh, And he was a twin, wasn't
2: he? Yeah, it turned out to be a mistake, I think, in the, in, in the end. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's the bottom line. So it's disappointing that we're not going to have the the world's first or universe. Instead, instead
1: they're sending out uh, one of the male astronauts, Nick Haig. And this is where the other problem came in, Fred. His sex change operation just wasn't done in time. They just (laughs) couldn't finish. So Uh, he has to go out as a man.
2: Yeah just just keep digging
1: Andrew That's yeah. a- <laughs> two giant holes, big holes there. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm sure they'll get around to it though because uh, it it would be a great moment and and isn't is it true I have a vague memory that women are better equipped physiologically for space aren't they I'm- better suited to be astronauts than men
2: I don't know the answer to that, but it would not surprise me at all.
1: I've got a feeling that's the case. I think I read it somewhere. They just yeah. um, they just seem to be better suited. Boom, boom. Uh, <laughs>
2: you probably read it in one of your science fiction books.
1: Except in this case, not better suited, which is uh, unfortunate. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll certainly tell you when it happens because I, I think they'll get another crack at it in the not-too-distant future. This is Space Nuts. I'm Andrew Dunkley, and he's Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, time to bump off a couple of questions. Uh, We're we're going to start with um, one that we actually got recently, but it sort of tickled our fancy, and uh, uh, we're going to tackle it now. This comes from Kev in Melbourne. G'day, Kev. Thanks for the question. We love this question. Uh, It basically goes something like this. I'm wondering if you can advise what would likely happen if an astronaut was to decide to hurl a tool as fast as they can at Earth while spacewalking. Uh, obviously, they would go backwards themselves somewhat, but what would happen to the tool? Uh, with uh, a high sideways velocity, the tool would not fall straight down, but would it uh, pick up uh, speed under gravity and without any uh, air pressure for some time? Any chance it would hit the ground? Good question. Now, before you answer it, I was watching a science, fictional, uh, science fiction animation recently, um, a program called, um, what's it called? Death love plus robots, and this was a a an episode called helping hand and and to give you the short story, an astronaut was out doing maintenance on a satellite um, She got knocked off the satellite by something you know space junk that hit the hit the satellite and dislodged her. Uh, she lost all power to her suit and could not uh, use the jet pack to get back to her her ship. Uh, When she realised she wasn't going to be rescued in time, she tourniqued her arm and took the glove off, exposing her lower arm to open space, and it froze. With the other arm, she threw the glove in one direction to propel her in the opposite direction. Unfortunately, she missed and had to sever her arm and do it again, but she, she got back on her ship. Now... That's Why didn't she just throw the knife? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good question, um, but um, that's anyway. what he's talking about that that yeah. actual that action of throwing something in space, propelling you in the opposite direction to where you've thrown the the object. In her case, her arm. Um, in in this case, it could be a spanner or who knows what. Uh, so, yeah, what's the story, Fred? Well, it's it's certainly true. If you if you threw something
2: in space, it would propel you slightly backwards but only by much well unless it was something with you know almost the same weight as you uh, that, that, that would be a, a much lower velocity that you'd, um, you, you would impel yourself backwards with than whatever it is you're throwing but um, I, it's uh, yes it interested me too did this uh, the way to so the, the last part of Kev's question is any chance it would make it to ground and um the answer is no, um, because a glove is. Uh, if you could, if you could make it lose altitude enough that it would hit the Earth's atmosphere, it would burn up very quickly. So it w- it would basically just burn up under the the speed. But uh, what interests me about it is what you would actually do, because you wouldn't throw it directly downwards, because if you do that, uh, the object you've thrown, let's say it's a tool, a spanner, or something like that. Uh, if you throw it downwards, it's essentially still got the same horizontal velocity as, as you have. Yes. Um, it's at a slightly lower altitude, but it's still moving at the same speed effectively. And what would happen is, it, <laughs> paradoxically, it would start overtaking you because it's lower, it's nearer to the Earth, and its orbital speed will be higher when it's nearer to the Earth. Uh, but that also means it's nearer to the Earth's atmosphere. I mean, we're talking about sp- relatively small distances here if you really wanted to get it back into the atmosphere as fast as you could though what you would do would be throw it backwards so um, give it a velocity opposite to the one that you're being carried forwards with and that velocity is nearly eight kilometers per second Uh, so anything you could throw doesn't really make much of an impact on that but it would reduce it very slightly so you throw the tool backwards Um, And that means it's now moving uh, at a a lower velocity, which puts it into a lower orbit. So it would actually um, eventually overtake you, uh, even though you've thrown it backwards, uh, uh, because it it would sink below um, the orbit that you're in, and a lower orbit means going faster. Um, And that would almost certainly hit the atmosphere earlier. Um, It's a bit like... Uh, when you want to change the orbit of a spacecraft. For example, let's look at the opposite problem. If you are in an orbit around the Earth and you want to put your spacecraft into a higher orbit, you basically do a forward, uh, you you burn off the rocket exhaust backwards, that propels you forwards, gives you an extra velocity. And what that does is it turns your orbit into an ellipse, uh, an elongated circle. Uh, which at its highest point is actually moving slower than you were to start with. Even though you've given it more velocity, um, you're moving more slowly. It's a bit bizarre. You've put more energy into it, though, so it's a higher energy orbit. It's all a bit, you know, uncanny is the way orbits work. But, yeah, it's a very nice question, and I hope somebody will try it one of these days, throw something backwards out the International Space Station.
1: (laughs) I, I would it be hard to do, given the the velocity you travel? I mean, it's just hard to imagine throwing something against the flow, but there's nothing out there, so you don't yeah you wouldn't be feeling anything, would you?
2: No, that's right. so if you throw through an object out of the you know uh, backwards from the motion of the international space station, it would it would actually look more or less the same whichever way you threw it. Um, because it would just be propelled off into the distance. But it's what happens to it later as the orbital mechanics kick in uh, that make it different.
1: Okay. But if you whatever direction you did throw it, you would be propelled somewhat the opposite way.
2: Yeah, very slightly, that's right. Mm, Okay.
1: So no cutting off arms in space and throwing them at things because (laughs) that's never a good idea. And I'm sure a tourniquet wouldn't actually seal the breach in your suit and you'd probably die anyway. That's my way of thinking. But, you know, science fiction, you can do whatever you like. That's why your series is
2: called Death, Love and Robots. The the clue is in the first word.
1: (laughs) It's a bizarre series. They're animated films and they're all about 10 or 15 minutes long. Uh, that episode was called Helping Hand, just in case someone's wondering. It was really good.
2: <laughs> Remind me not
1: to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are bizarre. Um, now, let's move on. We've got a, um, a, a question from Hugh Simmons. Uh, Hugh's a bit of a regular, but he comes up with some interesting ideas, and he obviously uh, listened to something we talked about recently in regard to black holes evaporating. And he said, I'm curious about this one. Uh, or more curious about this one because I think he asked us another question. Uh, when a black hole evaporates, does its mass lessen to the point where it turns into something like a neutron star or does it just eventually evaporate to nothing? I cannot imagine a black hole becoming nothing. Yeah. Because it's uh, nothing already.
2: <laughs> well, it's no, it's something. It's got mass. It's, some of them have got, you know, four, bu- four billion tons of mass. You can't massive. see it. <laughs> <laughs> you can see what's going on around it yes, yeah it can. Mm-hmm. so um so the the reason why it's got um you know it's a it's a point of uh black hole's defined as a point of infinite d- density as we've mentioned before and the reason why it's in, um infinite is because even though it's got mass uh it's got no volume and and the um, the density of an object is mass over volume uh and so if you're dividing uh, a mass which might be four billion times the mass of the sun uh, by a volume which is zero it's always going to turn out to be infinity it doesn't matter what what you put on the top of the uh, on the top of the equation um so that's right so it's definitely not nothing however um it what's interesting about this question is uh, it's one i've never thought about before i have to say but my guess is that the answer is it evaporates to nothing oh. because Let's look at the process of evaporation. This This is is sounding
1: very Monty Python. Nothing can come uh, of nothing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All of black hole theory is straight out of Monty Python. There are two ways about it. It's uh, the process is Hawking radiation that makes it evaporate, and that's a quantum effect. It's uh, you know when you get these virtual particles being formed, uh, virtual particle pairs being formed. Uh, in space out of nothingness this is where it gets even more Monty Python Uh, if one's formed on one side of the event horizon the other's on the other then uh, one's lost into space and the other stays in the the black hole and it basically evaporates Uh, over billions of years what did we say uh, last time we spoke about this that if you uh, had a um, a black hole the, the mass of the sun one solar mass it will take 10 to the power 64 years to evaporate Um, it's a very long job. And of course, the universe is only, well, 13.8 times times 10 to 9 years old. So it's a lot longer than the age of the universe. However, um, my guess is that it would fizzle away to nothing and not to an intermediate mass object, because a neutron star is the result of a star collapsing uh, at the end of its life when the You know, the uh, nuclear processes give out because it's run out of fuel so that there isn't the radiation pressure to keep the thing inflated. A star collapses. And if it's above, we now know actually it's 2.2, sorry, if it's less than 2.2 times the mass of the sun, but more than 1.4 times the mass of the sun, it will turn into a neutron star. What that means is that the matter of this object collapses and um, is only stopped from further collapse by the outward pressure of neutrons jostling against one another, which is why it's called a neutron star. That that's an entity then that exists and does weird things. We get pol- um, pulsars and all sorts of things like that from these objects. But uh, its 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 collapse has been stopped. With a black hole, that's not happened. A black hole has more than two point two times the mass of the sun neutron pressure won't stop the collapse so it goes down to this singular singularity a point of infinite density and it can't then go back to becoming a neutron star so as it evaporates it will just lose its mass to space and eventually will just fizzle out altogether there won't be anything there that's a bit sad it is it's
1: such a sad think of something such so so cataclysmically powerful you just wouldn't anticipate that it'll just fizzle into nothingness over a long, long, long period. A long, of time. long, long time. That's right. Yeah. But, yeah. I suppose everything ends. Everything
2: comes to an end, even black holes. That's mm. right, and even space nuts. Ah,
1: not yet. <laughs>
2: No, but, today. Uh, just well, yeah, well, we're just about to do that. Yes. today. I'm only thinking about today, Andrew. Oh, don't, don't 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 get any wild ideas about where I'm going. I'm not going anywhere.
1: Very good. Uh, and thank you here for your question. It was uh, it was a real uh, good one to get the the brain matter munching. And uh, we we do love your questions. Keep them coming, and we'll do our best to answer them all. We're trying to double up and do two a week. So just one and a half questions sent to us a week, please, so that we can catch up slowly like a (laughs) (laughs) black hole And thank you, Fred, as always. It's a great pleasure and a lot of fun. Good to talk to you, Andrew, and we'll speak next time. We will. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening and keep those cards and letters rolling in. We'll catch you real soon.
2: Space Nuts. You've been listening
0: to the Space Nuts podcast.
1: Subscribe to the full
0: podcast
1: on iTunes and Stitcher or your favorite podcast distributor.
2: This has been another quality podcast production from Sights.com.